Good morning, Journey. Good to see you guys. My name's Chris, and it's a privilege to be with all of you. I just wanted to tell you up front, but before we do anything else this morning, that I will not be removing any clothing today. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, right, it kind of got awkward pretty fast, and, and then you weren't here last weekend. That's really the thing here, and you miss one, you miss a lot. Right in, and you missed that last week, and go check that out. Uh, other than that, we're actually starting the fourth week of a series that we're calling Against the Grain. And it's all about going, obviously, against the grain. However, uh, I'm going to change it up just a little bit this weekend and, and hopefully paint for us a picture, a, a humbling picture, actually, of a God who goes against the grain. And it's actually going to be a picture of a God who sprints, which is a really cool image of God. And so my hope is by the time we, we part ways here this morning, uh, we'll at least on some level have some deeper understanding, even if it's only a little bit, uh, of how much God loves us, of what the depth of that love might actually look like for us. So before we dive into what all that is, let's, let's just pray that God would be present for each one of us this morning. God, we... We come before you this morning, probably carrying all kinds of different things, whether good or bad, and, and we ask that in, in this moment, for the next 20 minutes or, or so, that our hearts would be completely focused on you. We believe you are a God who wants to speak to each one of us individually, that, that you have something that, that you want to speak into each one of our hearts. Would you give us ears to hear that? Uh, would you open us up to humbly receive that? Uh, God, I know that I can't do this on my own either, and would, would your spirit be present in me? Would you give me the words to speak uh, so that you might be glorified and so that you might be made famous this morning? We love you, and we do this all for you. In your name we pray, amen. So last week we, we engaged this idea of living our lives in a place of weakness, in a place of vulnerability. And, and this might have, have sounded really great when we left here that last weekend until we got out into the real world and we tried it, and then it was awfully uncomfortable. It was a bit more revealing than maybe we had planned it to be. And, and I get that because it happened for me as well. And this is exactly what, what Paul kind of laid out for us last week. He, he promised that this might happen, but he also said that God promises right, to give us the freedom to be who we really are. He promises that freedom. And so a life lived in vulnerability must first begin with us turning to the Lord. And, and here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. I'll just read this for you. Paul says this, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, right? They're uncovered. There's nothing covering who they are anymore. He says, for the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? The freedom to be that person. He says, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. That's what Paul was laying out. And so we, we read that and we kind of wonder what does a life where we remove the veil, right, where we're no longer hiding our brokenness and our, our vulnerability and our weaknesses, what does that actually look like? Is there some sort of, of model or blueprint for this other than maybe what Paul laid out for us last week? And, and I think that we can start to see a picture of this 
in this story that Jesus tells in the book of Luke. Uh, many people call this story the parable of the prodigal son. Have you heard of that one? Right? Some people call it the parable of the lost son, but really it's actually a story about two lost sons, an older brother and a younger brother and their father. And it just so happens that Jesus actually never gave this story a title. He just told it. So I'm just going to tell it to you, and then we'll go from there. So beginning in Luke 15, verse 11, this is the story of the quote-unquote parable of the prodigal son. It goes like this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. In all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And as we prepare to unpack all that Jesus would have us glean from, from this story. It's important to make a few observations up front. The, the first one would be this, and I mentioned it earlier, that this is actually a story about two sons, a lost younger son and a lost older son, and we are meant to contrast those two lives together so that we might get what it is that Jesus wants us to glean from this story. Beyond that, we actually see that if we look beneath the surface of this story, Jesus is preaching a very radical message. 
And it's meant to be seen through the eyes of each one of these characters, the father and the two sons. And when we do that, we realize that Jesus has actually come in telling this story to shatter all all of our, our human categories for how we connect with God. He's gonna break that apart. And so hang on for the ride. It comes to us in two acts. The first one is with the younger brother, right? And then that's followed by the older brother. But first, I want us to know who Jesus is talking to. So Luke 15, one and two tells us this audience that Jesus has before him. And here's what it says. Before any of these stories happen, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them, right? That's what Jesus was doing. So those are the people that are there, right? The worst of the worst is what we're trying to get here. And so after we find out who's there, Jesus then tells a story about a lost sheep. And then he tells a story about a lost coin. And then he gets to this story where he tells us about a lost son. And all of this is meant to paint a picture of God's character and of his unrelenting love. And so let's break it down as we go along. Picking up in verse 11, it says to illustrate the point further, right? The point that God will go to great lengths to rescue whatever it was that was lost. That's the point he's illustrating further. Jesus told them this story. He said a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, the oldest son would always receive a double portion of whatever the other children received. And so in this instance, right, that means that this younger son was asking for a third of the estate. He wanted a third of his father's estate. But no one ever asked for this until after the father died. No one asked for it while the father was living. So in in effect, this younger son is saying, he goes to his dad, he's like, Dad, I'm eager for you to die. Uh, I want to live as if you were dead. That's what he's saying. And in doing this, he shames his father greatly, as you can imagine, and he disgraces the family. Right, or we could put it like this, and I put it like this because it kind of hits closer to home for me. Essentially what the younger son is saying, he's saying, I want the father's things, but I don't want the father. Like I want the benefits of everything that the father can give, but I don't want the father. And the original hearers of this story, they would have been completely astonished at such a selfish request from the younger son. Like, who would ask that? Who would wish their father dead? However, in the next sentence, they would become then even more astounded at the actions of this father following the request. He actually grants the request. A typical Middle Eastern response to such an outlandish request as this would be for the father to remove the son from the home with verbal and physical blows. Right, like, no, you are not a part of the family anymore, goodbye. Like, that's, they would send them off. And so we already know that there's something different about this father. There's something different about him. And when we read that the father agreed to divide his wealth, this actually means that he was agreeing to divide his life, right, his land that they were living on. He literally had to sell a third of his land in order to give his son the share. 
right? Like, so think about it. They, they're living on this land. They're their whole lives, and they like draw a line, a third of it, and he has to sell it, and that's no longer theirs because he's giving it to his younger son. Right? The, the father is giving up a portion of the family's livelihood, a portion of the family's source of living. He, he's literally tearing apart his life for his younger son as he sacrifices their way of living and, and simultaneously diminishes his standing within the community because he actually did it. Tim Keller says that the father in this moment is enduring the, the worst thing a human being can endure, rejected love. That's what's happening to the father. And so Jesus continues the story like this. He says, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Or like his motto was YOLO. He, he went for it, right? He was, you live once, let's do this big in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now, this whole, the, the, the pig thing is really interesting when we read this because we don't think all that much of that, right? As soon as we read about pigs, we're like, we would like some bacon, right? We, we start to crave bacon, especially in the morning right now. Like, that would be nice if I had brought you all some bacon, right? And, and we're, we don't think that much of it. We're actually, we're more, we're more shocked and dismayed that this younger son decided to spend his money on, on prostitutes and parties. We're like, that's a bummer. But the Jewish culture, like the, the, the Jewish hearers of this story, they would have been more shocked about the pig thing. Like the pig thing was a big deal to them. Because to, to a Jew, someone who touched pigs, let alone someone who slops around with them, would have actually been four times as unclean as someone who had been with a prostitute. Like Jesus is making this really clear. He, he is at the bottom of the bottom. He's not only shaming his family now, he's shaming himself. He's like as dirty as he can be. He's as messed up as he can be. But then something happens for the younger son. Jesus continues like this, he says, when he finally came to his senses, when he finally came to his senses, which is apparently something he had to do for himself. I am sure there were multiple people who tried to talk sense into him before all of this happened, but he would have none of it, right? It was when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, and here's a speech that he has prepared. He says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so now a few things are happening here after he comes up with this plan, right? And the first is that the younger son actually has a plan, that's good news, right? I, I, I felt like maybe if I was a parent of a teenager, an older teenager, maybe an early 20-something, I would find hope in that statement that eventually they came up with a plan. Or they actually had a plan for their life at some point. So that's good news for you parents. And, and also then, during this time period, right, a, a hired servant, that's not a slave. 
Not the same as a slave. Instead, that's someone who would learn a skill under an apprentice. Right, so a hired servant would be learning a skill so that they could eventually earn a wage. And what the younger son is doing here is, is he's coming up with a plan, a pretty smart plan actually, so that he might be able to make restitution with his father. He, he figures there's no way I can get back into the family as a, a son. I know that's not going to happen, but maybe at the very least I could learn a skill, make some money, and begin to pay you back. That's his plan. On top of that, the other thing that's happening is this, is the younger son is assuming that something about the father has changed because of his sin. Right? While he's been gone and, and you know, doing all the wild living thing, he assumes that something has changed. He assumes his sin has the power to change the father's affections for him. And because of this sin, he, he thinks the best he can do is hired servant. So that becomes his plan. He knows he can't shoot for son anymore, so he shoots for hired servant. And, and I just wonder, like, how often do we do the same thing, if we're honest? We give ourselves way too much credit with our sin that, that we think we have the power to change the father. And then lastly, this is what's happening. We have this younger son. He, he's finally decided. He's made a decision to turn his life around. He wants to go the other direction. He's changing the trajectory of his life. And you can imagine, though, that when he makes that decision right, to turn home, it is not one where he goes skipping home, right? but his head hangs low with shame. He's walking towards home in shame. But what happens next, every, every time I read it, like it literally floods my heart with adrenaline. And so if you're sleeping, wake up and just hear these, these next two pieces that I have to share with you. And then you can go back to resting and dreaming of the bacon we talked about. But I want you to hear this. Right? In Luke 15, 20, it says this. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. If someone is going to see you coming, what does that mean they were doing? They were looking for you. Right? They were watching for you. They were waiting for you. They were longing for your return. Right? And it says he was a long way off. That means like I have this image of the father standing at the front door squinting into the, into the distance, right? Like looking at the horizon, hoping, hoping, hoping that something might start to just show itself. Looking for him. His father saw him coming. And next it says, filled with love and compassion. The father, he ran to his son embraced him and kissed him. And if the, if the saw him coming piece, right, like that, that God would actually be a father who's hoping to see us coming, like if that doesn't blow your minds, right, then, then this next part, this idea of running and kissing, like should literally cause our, our hearts to explode all over this room. And, and here's why that would be messy. And yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen, but he, here's why, right, a younger son, Right, this younger son is walking towards home, towards his father. Right, and his father sees him. This is the same father that this son wished was dead. 
the same father, and he comes running. He's not a father who's on the porch, right? Arms crossed, tapping his foot. Right? He's not the father shouting out, I told you so, right? Wagging his finger at him with disappointment in his words, frowning. He's not that. He is actually a father who literally sprints. He literally sprints off the porch or whatever they had at their home, right? Like the Greek word here for ran, when it says he ran to him, it means athletic games, right? So this is like a legit sprint. This isn't some half-hearted trot, right? It's not a nice little jog. Like this is an athletic games type of sprint. Like I'm thinking Usain Bolt type of speed, right? Like shooting out of the blocks. If you don't know who Usain Bolt is, he's really fast. Maybe Carl Lewis, uh, Michael Johnson. I don't know what age range we got. Edwin Moses, right? I'm dropping all, all kinds of track knowledge on you, right? Like one of those really fast guys. That's what this father does. He sprints. He sprints. And keep this in mind, right? Like a Middle Eastern father, he, he, would, have been, he would have been wearing like more of a prestigious type of robe, right? Not the best sprinting outfit. I don't know if you've ever worn a robe or if you know anything about robes, but they're not ideal for sprinting. They're not. They don't work that well for sprinting. So, so think about this. By sprinting, the father is, is now pulling up his robe in order to sprint. So not, what is he doing, right? Like, they don't show their legs. A Middle Eastern patriarch does not show their legs. So now he is disgracing and shaming himself for the son again. Right, and just imagine if somebody's running with the robe, they might not just be showing their legs, right? Like, that could get very shameful very fast. That's what this father is doing. Because at this time, this is all for the sake of the son. Like, children run, Right, maybe even mothers during that time would run. Middle Eastern fathers didn't run. Owners of estates didn't act like this. They didn't run. And it's one of my favorite pictures of our heavenly father. Our God is a God who sprints. How awesome is that? That's not even the end of it, right? Then comes the kiss. Right, this, this father representing God who first sprints to his son, which seems unimaginable in and of itself, does something even more unimaginable. When he gets to his son, he kisses him. Like These are the actions of a mother. This is what a mother would do, not a Middle Eastern father. And, and beyond that, like there is no other religion that describes a God like this, like uh, looking for you, sprinting, embracing, kissing God. That's our God. And the story goes on like this. His son said to him, Father, right? This is his prepared speech. And he's already been like tackled by the sprint. He's hugging, kissing him, and he says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, right, without acknowledging this prepared speech of shame, he begins to show, right, in that moment that his younger son is still his son. 
A son worthy of disgraceful sprinting and affirming kisses, right? He, he doesn't want to hear the speech, and so he takes it one step further to prove his love for his son, and he says to his servants, he says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. That's in the Bible, right? So the party began. How awesome is that, right? That's what they had. I mean, there was nothing else they could do but have a party. It was that awesome, right? And so think about this. So the first thing he does is he says, get the finest robe. Who, who would have the finest robe in the house? The father, right? It would be the father's robe. And in this moment, the son cannot do anything to earn his way back into the good graces of the father. Like he, he has literally wasted everything. He's been rolling around with pigs. He is, he is in rags. He is close to naked and he is standing there fully exposed before the father. And the only one who can cover him is the father. When the father gets the best. And in that moment, his standing as son is restored only by the love of the father. Like there's no time for baths, right? There's no time to clean ourselves up. There's no time for speeches, right? It's time for the party. We've restored you as the son, so let's get to the party. And the message here is, is powerful because this, this represents our heavenly father. Right, God is a God who dances with his shattered, broken child. That's what happens at the party. They dance. They celebrate. And every child of God, every son and daughter who returns home, who turns to the Lord, is deserving of a celebration, of a feast, of a party, of a dance with a God who has loved them relentlessly and will continue to love them relentlessly. And this younger son's brokenness and weakness, as, as we see him in that moment, is in fact the picture of the Christian life. Like the unveiled, uncovered, fully revealed to the light Christian life. We see it in the younger son. And on the level that we might apply some of this to our lives, I believe we must intentionally live like the younger brother. We must intentionally live like that, where we know we cannot do life on our own, where we are in deep need, where we are dependent on our Father. Yet we always remember that we are God's beloved. Right? He loves us and we live in the gentle embrace of such a truth as that, that, that when we are with God, we are home. We're home. Henry Nouwen describes his struggle like this, the struggle to stay home. He says, yet over and over again, I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and run to faraway places searching for love. This is the great tragedy of my life and the lives of so many I meet on my journey. He said, somehow I have become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved. There are many other voices the dark voices of my surrounding world try to persuade me that I am no good and that I can only become good by earning my goodness through making it up the ladder of success. 
where he tries to find the good in all these other places and he leaves home. And, and as for me, I too am prone to leave home, believe it or not. Like, I, I leave home as God's beloved when, when, when this week I received, an, I received an encouraging email. Somebody was saying, great job last weekend. And in so doing that, they described a past sermon or two as rougher. Right? And, and then rather than hear the encouragement, like, immediately I hear that I am not good enough. That's not what it was saying. It was saying, great job. Proud of you. Keep it up. And immediately I run and I set off and I go away from home and I set out to find my worth in the words of people. Or like just like that, I left home. I also leave home when in pursuit to, to fit in and be liked. I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but sometimes I do that. I try to fit in and be liked. And in that process, what happens is my sarcasm that is usually quite wonderful, uh, it, be, it becomes a bit hurtful. And, and what, it, what it did this week is it, it, at times it started to push away the, the very students that I love and live to influence with the love of Jesus. And then the next thing you know, I've left home again. And that was, that was just the past few days, right? Like just, just the past few days. And as I got lost, right, as I became the lost son this week, I, I again realized that, that I want to live in the embrace of my father, fully aware of how broken and how fragile I am. Because I, I truly believe I, with all my heart that the light of Christ shines brightest in my weakness and that's why I want to live in that place. Act two, the older brother. All right, let's check out what's going on with him. Because you, I, I doubt you related to the younger brother at this point, so maybe you can relate to the older brother. So here, here's what he's up to beginning in verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, right, he won't even call him his brother, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Apparently this calf is a big deal. All right, we'll get to that in a second. And his father said to him, right, like this probably, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And that's where the story ends. The end, we have no idea what happens. Right, but we do know this. We do know that the older brother in this moment, he was particularly upset about the cost right, of what was being spent. Right? That's why this fattened calf is important. The calf's a big deal. Like Middle Eastern people at this time, they never ate meat. Like rarely. It was a delicacy. And so not only that, they rarely if ever ate the fattened calf. 
But the only time that would happen, if it was going to happen at all, it would be a feast in which the whole community would come and be a part of it. If it ever happened in their lifetime. And so in this moment of celebration, the older brother is saying to his father, how dare you spend our wealth like this? He dishonors his father by, one, making him come out of the party and beg him. And two, he doesn't even refer to his father by name. It's as if he's taking his finger and saying, you, you are wasting our money, poking it in his chest. And, it, and now we see for the older brother, just like the younger brother at the beginning of the story, it's only about the father's things. Right? And he's upset and he's annoyed and he's angry that, that these things are being wasted on his good-for-nothing younger brother, right? Like, why would we spend this on him? And all of a sudden, when we read that, we realize the older brother is actually more lost than the younger brother ever was. Do you know why? The older brother can't even see his own lostness. He's been so good and so moral, and I'm sure he's been so right that he's been blinded to the Father's heart. He's been living with the Father all along, yet he is so far from the Father. And apparently it's possible to obey all the commandments, or as the brother says, slave for the Father, and still miss out on the heart of the Father. When we're not intentional about living vulnerable lives, right, with our, our, our brokenness and our weakness at the forefront, we become like the older brother. Our hearts become hard. And so real quick, I want to reveal three things that, that, that show the older brother within us. And these are probably more true for me. I'm guessing you can relate. And here's the first one. This reveals the older brother within us. When we hold on to our anger, rather than humbly process it with our father, we become like the older brother. Hold on to the anger. Hold on to the things that have angered us, have hurt us. Second thing, we find ourselves grumbling and complaining about things rather than celebrating or like we become those people who are the fault finders and we're a bit proud, we're a bit condescending, right? Like if you see the older brother, there is no dance in the heart of the older brother, right? There is no celebration in the heart of the older brother. He's too busy grumbling and complaining. And then the third thing is this, when we hold on to our offenses, we start to live like the older brother rather than taking the path of forgiveness, right? We overlook the fact of how greatly we need to be forgiven. And we hold on to those offenses and we let them hurt us again and again and again and again. We never set them free. The lifestyle of the older brother causes us to cover up our need for this sprinting, hugging, kissing father. I don't want us to be that person. And if there's anything that I think you and I need to hear over and over and over and over again, which you have probably heard over and over again, it's this. We are loved by God. Like that's the picture I want us to get. We are his beloved, right? We are loved not just when we return home, but even when we're a long way off, because even then God is, right, he's looking out 
to the horizon, fully expectant, hopefully expectant that we might turn home, maybe even for the first time. And as he looks for us, and as he sees us, God sprints, God embraces, God kisses. He doesn't wait to lavish us with his love and his grace and his freedom and his forgiveness. Like He covers us immediately in that. There is no prayer to pray in that moment. There is no speech to give, no plan to execute. We are simply home with the Father. And so before I close this, the the band's gonna play a song that says this is true from the Father's perspective. When I woke one morning staring down at me said I'll take my share now Father please and you took your money and you took your leave you drilled my heart and you turned your back on me and you hit the town
please come home Don't you know, son, that I love you And I don't care where you've been So please come home Thank you, guys. Let's go ahead and set our stuff aside right now and just maybe get to a place where we can reflect on a God who says, I'm waiting for you. I don't care where you've been. I'm looking for you. I love you. I'm ready to sprint to you, embrace you, hold you. And let's reflect on that, that kind of God, that God who loves us like that. And I'll close us in a moment. continue to just take this time I want to give maybe anyone here this morning an opportunity to just proclaim that they're turning back maybe maybe you've never turned to the Lord at all not once you've been going the other direction your whole life up to now and you're ready to turn to him or or maybe it's just been a prolonged running you you were living with the father much like the younger son but you've been, you've been going the other direction for some time and today you're ready to turn back. Or maybe, maybe you're feeling like the older brother and you've been standing outside the party for much too long and you're ready to enter back in to that. If you're at any one of those places in your life, would you just be so bold as to slip your hand up and, and look me in the eye and say, yeah, that, that's me, I'm turning back today. I've been going the other direction for far too long. And we can just celebrate that together. If that's you, yep, back there, over there, 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 yeah. Yep, yep. See you too. Like how, how beautiful is the picture that in that moment, God is sprinting to us. He is sprinting to you right now. God, we are just in awe that you are a God who, who does in fact love us no matter what, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. And my prayer for, for all of us is that we would hold so tightly to the truth that we are your beloved, that we would never forget that, that there's nothing we can do to break that promise that you've made to us. God, would you give us the courage and the boldness to live like the younger son who turns back to you fully vulnerable, fully broken, fully aware of his weakness so that we might live lives that are dependent on you, that are committed to you. May each day, even as we maybe turn back for a moment and leave you, would we, would we realize that there is no place for us outside of home with you? We are your children. We love you, God. Would you continue to make us more and more 
like you, would we not leave this room the same this morning? For your glory and for your honor, we love you. In your name we pray.